So we can look at response to change in, in two ways. A lot of us futurists are failed historians. Look back at the 1920s, the Roaring Twenties as this incredible age of rejection of the past, rejection of the things that, that got us into the last round of the, the World War One and the pandemic, an acceptance of the other, a greater acceptance of the other. So you had this incredible rise of African-American jazz music. You had uh, women's suffrage getting the vote and having women reject some of their, the, the beauty standards of the past and, and be more androgynous. You had women being at the leading edge of the, taking leadership roles in society and propelling us towards this greater acceptance, this broader vision of, of, of humanity. On the other end, you have Germany in the late 20s and early 30s, the rise of Nazism and fascism. There is one right answer. We will nationalize everything and the state is going to be in charge of the, the individual. Those are two completely different responses to the exact same stimulus. I'm Steve Hurst. And I'm Vesey Ivanova. We're with Found Brand Agency. I'm Christian Cruz, founder of Wavepoint. You're listening to Wavepoint Found, a podcast that explores brand and identity in the context of change. There are two ways to respond to change. One is acceptance and the resulting evolution. The other is a shift toward rigidity, force, and control. In this episode of Wavepoint Found, we dig into what the ongoing social justice and sustainability movements mean for the future of brands and how companies can use their identity to navigate the shifting waters with authenticity. One of the terms that's coming up now in terms of around social justice, and similar to greenwashing, is this term perform performative allyship, as in we're, we're saying we're for Black Lives Matter, but we haven't hired any more people of color into our organization. We say, yeah. you go to our website and you've got BLM written right across the top, but you don't have anybody else, any new people of color in, in, in positions of power. So performative allyship, I thought was an interesting phrase. It's also in the LGBT community mm -hmm. as well in terms of they're starting to catch on to companies that put rainbows on things, but don't do anything else. I forget his name consistently. He's a professor that's coining the idea of anti-racism. Ibrahim so X. Kendi. Yeah, Ibrahim X. Kendi talks about you're either racist or you're anti-racist. There's not any in between. Or, or is what you're doing furthering the cause for inclusion or is it working against it? There's no neutrality in the exchange. And that is applicable really for a lot of these social change concepts. Is or You're not just on the sidelines. You can't just not have a voice. The things that you do have to be actively pushing something in a positive direction. I want to dig into the genius of uh, anti-racist or racist, and there's no such thing as non-racist because it's what you do. That's what he talks about in his book is what are your actions? Every action you take is either going to push in one direction or the other. It's not about who you are because who you are fluctuates and changes. Your identity evolves, but it's the actions that you choose to take that define that identity. So what which direction are you going to go in? And you can't be neutral because the world isn't neutral. So what are you going to, what choices are you going to make? So it, that should be liberating to companies who are large and are possibly going like, how are we going to pivot? How are we going to solve all of this? Because really what it means is that every time you make a choice, you have the opportunity to make the right one. And all you have to do is consistently do that. And eventually you'll get there. Scary territory for companies, though, who would love to be neutral and take all sides money. Yes. And yeah, <laughs> cautionary tale right now is Goya. Yo, took a side, came out, and uh, wow, the backlash was strong and immediate. And uh, that's something that brands are going to have to realize they're going to have to 
they can't be neutral. So in the same vein of racist or anti-racist, they just can't be neutral. They're going to have to pick a side. And there, there is a dark scenario out there in the future that, that is almost a disuniting of the United States because mm-hmm. the political lines are so well are so strongly drawn. What do you do as a brand to authentically participate in red and blue communities? At the end of the day, it probably comes down to, hey, we, we believe in and support people and we want to believe in and support you. But yeah, how, how companies aren't used to taking sides on some of this stuff and they don't like it. Well, it would be a healthy ecosystem for there to be products and brands and services that speak to smaller audiences. Not that they need to be along harsh political lines or belief lines that remove agency from parts of the, of the population, but it isn't e- e- healthy from an ecosystem standpoint for us to have one massive company that serves everybody. It would be much healthier for us to have a, an ecosystem of, of several or more that all contribute to a healthy system. Yeah, they uh, create a balance, right? Yeah. And, and, and you've pointed to this idea of local and, and the shopping local and being local and, and this consumer focus on community. It was the community. It was your little safe pod that got you through all this, that allowed you to have some sort of socialization in, for a year when you didn't. So this kind of push to local is interesting. It because local, it's super easy to make a stand, right? It's you're going to make the stand that you that benefits your community. So it'll be very interesting to see this rise of small companies, small to mid-sized companies that are regionally based that are authentically in communities and employing people in communities. But then also, can they take advantage of some of the tools that the big guys are using? So the massive data sets, the artificial intelligence applications, the the machine learning ways that large companies are using to really get at their audiences. And so does that democratize into smaller and mid-sized companies? Do they start to have the ability to do that? I think it's inevitable. Is That's always the way of technology is that it's at first it's only available to a few and then it gets democratized. And I think you would have a more clear perspective on this, but it seems like that is only accelerating continuously and happening faster. And I think the thing with local businesses and smaller groups for obvious reasons, because you have person-to-person interaction, that social pressure of doing the right thing exists in a much more real way than it would for a larger company. The more removed you are from the people you interact with, the easier it is to forget that they're people. It's not, it's just a normal function of how we are. So when you're talking about a local business, they're more likely I'm just going to say it, it's probably controversial, but I think they're more likely to act in a moral way because they have the social pressure to do that. And if you then pair that with the power of AI, you're actually giving them a lot of leeway, certainly from a brand perspective, because they're more likely to be beloved. And if you then also give them the same advantages that a larger organization might have, then you can turn them into a much stronger force for good. So there's an example of the sort of the previous 10 years has been about some of the large CPG companies just getting eaten alive on the corners by niche products, specific niche products. Now, to, so I think local businesses uh, in the same way because they're gonna know their consumer a lot better because they're gonna have digital platforms and in-person platforms that are as good or better than the national or international brands. And they're gonna have the, the built-in advantage of knowing the community in the same way that sort of niche DDC brands 
were in the past 10 years, you're going to start to see that for a kind of local brand. So, you know, how to be local is going to be a really interesting, how to compete with local if you're a national brand or if you're a local brand, how do you manage your growth and how do you expand your communities? Because that, that has been one of the things that the direct to consumer space was having trouble with was all of a sudden acquisition costs were growing extremely high. It was very hard for DTCs to continue operating because just the cost of getting a customer was so big comparatively as they got big. When they were small, it was okay. But once they got to a certain size, it got really hard. And I think that's going to be interesting to see how these small and, and I think you're going to see an explosion of these small and mid-sized companies becoming national brands and how they manage that. It's going to be really interesting. I mean, this could lead into a philosophical conversation about should they build <laughs> into national brands? Do they all need to? Right, like this, uh, this this push to get bigger and bigger. You just it's if it, it's clearly evident in the efficiency and, and and cost of supply to not get to that size and maintain a, a solid product at a small to medium size. There's a brewery, there's a microbrewery in Vermont that has refused anybody's money, and they distribute locally, and everybody loves them so much. But there's only certain days that they will even sell to the public, and there's these just so picture this sort of rural Vermont area. And there's just a line of cars down this rural road, as far as you can see on a Saturday morning, because they're waiting for that gate to open and get their two cases of beer. That's exciting. And that's fascinating. But on the other hand, if you're an owner, what a temptation to say, what if I could just put one more brewery in New Hampshire? <laughs> and I think that's okay. I, I think that's the key is not everybody has to do that. That's not the only desirable outcome. Equilibrium where you do have a business that provides an amazing product that has an audience that loves that product. That's good. Not everybody needs to grow. And some people can choose to do that and that's okay too. It doesn't make you a villain to grow and it doesn't make you an idiot to stay small. But to something Christian suggested earlier, these larger companies providing a, a um, infrastructure, a digital infrastructure tools, or those things being democratized to help all of those choices be valid, right? You don't yes. have to get to a certain size to have access to X digital technology, you can maintain that size and that, you know, affinity with your customers and, and, you know, still be able to, to, to do certain things more efficiently and have access. So, so let's dig into that though, because I think an obvious example of, of someone who has really, I mean, it seems that they have democratized um, a lot of different elements for businesses is Amazon, right? The idea of like being able to have a product and have them handle all the logistics and all you do is focus on marketing that product that is that's democratizing but there's obviously many issues we have with some of what amazon is doing but so th this concept of platforms as democratizing and really enabling the existence of smaller pieces of an ecosystem mm -hmm. how does that is that maybe where some of the larger companies are going that do know how to handle large-scale things but maybe don't get local is it a, about just knowing how to partner and knowing how to lean into your strengths yeah, before the pandemic, that was a huge part of where large companies were at, which was what's my Amazon strategy? Do I just join that platform? And in the act of joining that platform, I lose control of my identity. Mm -hmm. And for smaller players, that's even a more significant question. I think in an ideal world, small players would like to have the scale without necessarily sacrificing being part of Amazon's empire. For Amazon, the scary bit for Amazon is what they have, they have access to all the data. Mm -hmm. So what Amazon does is for every single category, they look at the best sellers and they figure out how to make a private label version of it. And they create Amazon basics for that version. 
which is again, are you a product maker or are you a platform? Some people in, in Washington have just tried to think about whether or not they need to legislate that you can either be a platform or you can be a product maker. You can't be both, but it's happening all over the place. You walk into a CVS, it's actually hard to buy brands now in CVS. Mm -hmm. it's, it's almost all a CVS brand. And for them, for their perspective, it's that's the easiest way to increase sales, right? It's just, just and that leads me to another thing, which is a zero sum game. So while I do think in the short term, 2021, 2025, we're going to experience some significant economic growth, not just in the United States, but around the world. Long term, we're moving into a period where we have declining birth rates in almost all developed countries. The U.S. is moving away from immigration to increase, increase that. There are going to be much more significant pressures on sustainability within the next couple of years. And so this idea of growth is really interesting to explore because growth increasingly in the twenties is going to be a problematic word. Mm -hmm. So if you're a corporation and you're a lot of your identity is based on, I'm delivering earnings per share every quarter to my shareholders. And my shareholders are people that own my stock. The shift in identity toward from that to, I deliver value to people and I improve the planet and my, the planet is my stakeholder, not just the shareholder and my employees and my communities are so paying our employees a living wage, making sure our communities are healthy uh, for our workers to live in and making sure that the planet is sustainable. That is going to be at the forefront of everybody's conversation about I brand identity in probably 2023 to 2030. Absolutely. It's funny. Andrew Yang talked about human-centric metrics in his platform, which I don't think anyone was ready to hear yet. But I really like the idea, which is we've been so focused on money-centric matrix metrics of whether or not we're doing better or worse. But there's so many other ways to measure the impact of any organization, any business, and they're all linked to what kind of change are you trying to make in the world? What's your identity? Who are you? And it can't be, like you said, we just make money because that's not a real thing. <laughs> Impacting people is a real thing. So what are you going to do with that? And how many companies do you think can make that shift? And in a re again, now we're back to performative allyship. How many companies can make that, can truly make that shift? I think the people within those companies from the bottom up, if enough of them can believe that's a real thing that can happen, then that shift can happen. It's not about the company because the company is is made up of people, right? It's if the if there are enough people that actually make up the the company that are doing the work, that are having the interactions with the clients and with each other, the ones that are building the products. If enough of them can shift their perspective a little bit and start to think of the work that they do not as impacting only the bottom line is always going to matter, of course. But not only in those terms, but also in the terms of like, how is this impacting uh, the people that I'm building this product for? Am I really making their lives better? Am I making the people in my supply chain's lives better? If we can get them to take that as something that can really be truly seen as a value, then I think that transformation will happen very quickly, just like we've seen some of these recent transformations all of a sudden start to happen really fast. And that belief is going to be easily tested because, to Vessi's point, the reality is that the business still needs to make money. Public companies, the stock price is still important. So how, how do you strike that balance of 
human-centric metrics with money-centric metrics and create something that is performative beyond the next quarter in, in multiple dimensions? And then how do you keep your employees and your people b- believing in that shifting kind of sense of priorities and, and, and focus? Because it, it can't be a hard 180-degree pivot to human-centric metrics. It's going to have to be a balance. But people's belief is easily shaken, and especially around these points of um, being passionate about who you work for and being um, transparent and and wanting change dra- dramatically it's not in some cases realistic to pivot. So how do you stoke and keep that belief going while um, still serving the, the evolving reality of being a public company? But that's, so that's interesting because we talked before about how the pandemic is melting some of those, some of those tenants that we thought were immutable. Guess what? The stock market is in its biggest boom cycle. And yet most of these companies are losing money hand over fist. Right? So here we are in an interesting, so why is that? <laughs> it turns out that maybe the stock market and the stock price may not be as directly connected to growth and profits as we thought. That's interesting. And what does that mean post pandemic? Will it just return to, Hey, listen, your EP, your earnings per share are X multiple over your shares outstanding, et cetera, or we going to start seeing more value-based investing in terms of these are the companies that are positioned long-term to succeed. These are the companies that are helping us right now through whatever crisis that we are in. So there, I, I think it's still the case that companies are going to have to make profit. <laughs> I'm not necessarily convinced that those profit margins need to be what they used to be. And I'm not convinced that For instance, companies that come out and say, I'm going to pay my low-income workers uh, a living wage in whatever community they're in. That has happened in the past, and those companies have been absolutely hammered in the marketplace, and their stock price has gone down because all of those uh, investors have gone to their competitors because their competitors will have uh, a lower cost to operate. But it might be more about the right to operate than the cost to operate moving forward. And so your corporate identity can't necessarily always be about monetary growth. It could be about values growth. It could be other, there could be other forms of growth that you get measured on that the stock market actually may take into account versus what's been happening lately. Mm -hmm. So that's another one of those interesting shifts. What's an interesting point to point out that the stock market in some ways has been measured emotionally. It's been how much debt do they have now? Can they, will they be able to operate safely for the next five years? Okay. Stock prices go up. That's not direct. That's not directly tied to, to revenue or money in the bank. The stock market does fluctuate based on emotional reaction to news and it's, it isn't just graded on financial performance. So if that's already the case, how do we make sense of that as a structure and, and, and move it in a, in a way that benefits humanity more than um, top shareholders? So that's another interesting shift then. So we've got a shift towards empathy. We've got a shift toward experience. We've got a shift towards agility a shift toward local, and now, a, a, I don't know if it's a shift away from growth, but a broadening understanding of what does it mean to be successful. And for my brand identity, for my brand to be successful, there's a broadening definition of what that means. I think to tie it all together, you asked you know, how do companies move in this way? And I can only kind of think about the context that we would talk with, whether it's a small business owner or a division within a larger company is, you know, where do you want to be and how do you get there authentically? Because everybody's path is different, right? There, you could be the local brewery that that has the line of cars that is never going to grow past that building, and that's what you want. You have identity and brand and communication needs that are going to be different than a larger company, but they're all rooted in knowing what you want, where you're going, and being comfortable operating there. Because it's about what your goals are, 
where you want to move to and not necessarily about what the market's doing and what your competitors are doing. It's being rooted in who you are and where you want to go and forcefully ignoring the pressures of the market um, and your competitors and maybe sometimes where your customers expect you to go. Yeah, there is this need. And so that's another interesting thing about this moment that we're in, which is around differentiation and uniqueness. You know, I became a futurist because I worked for a company that tried to out Home Depot <laughs> and they were a 90 year old company and they failed and they went out of business. Two and a half billion dollar company with over 120 stores uh, employing tens of thousands of workers and they're out of business because they just tried to copy Home Depot. You're seeing that now with every single ad starting with in these challenging times. <laughs> so yeah, in some ways, how do you, it, it's hard to be unique right now. You know, how do you ex express your own unique voice? And I agree with you. You have to find that differentiated way of being, and that's deeply rooted in your identity to be successful as a company. You could certainly argue that Apple embodies that to a T. They did things very differently and they just stuck at it and they delivered authentically on their vision. And, but now in the, in these challenging times, it, it's hard to be one of those, be unique in terms of how you're responding to the moment and being authentic. And I, th I think it does go back as Vesti, you were saying to action, not words. It, it's it, it is challenging for sure. It's scary really is the right word, I think. Because it's really, I think the reason everybody's saying in these challenging times or some variation thereof is because they're afraid of saying the wrong thing. And that's completely normal because a lot of people are hurting. And when people are hurting, it's really, it's hard to know what to say. But you have to, that, that to me is an opportunity to, if you can be your authentic self and, and really try to contribute in a way that's meaningful with your actions, first and foremost, but also with your words, I think that's an opportunity to actually stand out. And yes, it's a risk, but guess what? It's also a risk to have someone read that you wrote in these challenging times and roll their eyes and know, okay, I see this person has nothing to say and they're just like falling in line. I think people underestimate how much of a risk it is to do nothing. Are brands in trouble? Are some of the big brands really in trouble? If I look forward, I see a real difficult road for a lot of companies to to be this thing that we're saying that they should all be. But I don't know, I see a huge threat, even though, again, I see post-pandemic, I see a pretty nice rebound economically and a pretty decent run of four or five years before towards the end of the decade, we really start running into climate change issues. You know, a nice run of growth, real growth for a lot of these brands, but I, it's getting these brands to the eye of the needle is gonna be really interesting as we get them out the other side. I think brands are in trouble. You know, we talked about the, the pre-pandemic pressures and, and changing, evolving desires of consumers and whether companies should continue to grow, some should continue to exist. A natural kind of purging process you know, might be valid, but I think it's going to be having to change, as a big brand, it's going to be having to change expectations. Like, will you go back to 2019 performance and metrics? No. Uh, will you go into 2023? with a completely different set of sub-businesses and in, in some cases, different business models, probably. And that's going to probably come with different you know, metrics and expectations along with that um, and probably uh, decreases in workforce and, and some products going away. But it's, an, it's a necessary evolution. Um, the, the market is pushing in that direction anyway, um, pandemic or not. And so I think the, the larger companies certainly have more flexibility and resources to be able to weather those storms. I, will, will they go away completely? No. 
um, but they're going to have to change their expectations and, and um, how they adapt certain parts of their business to the, the evolving market. There's a there's an element too that we I think we didn't touch on of what when you said brands are in trouble. When we think about Facebook and we think about Amazon and we even Apple, even post Steve Jobs, the thing that comes to your mind first, I don't know if it's true for you as well, but for me, it's faces before logos. Brands are now people. And um, the brands that have been around for a really long time that where you don't immediately have that human connection, I think they are especially in trouble. Even though this is a very challenging way to navigate, because when Amazon does something wrong, you think, oh, Jeff Bezos did something wrong. It's also a much more authentic and intimate connection that you have. And I think, you know, if you're someone who's launching a new product right now, I think a good question to ask yourself is, would I put my face on that product? Because that's what the reality is going to be going forward. Yeah. And hence this, a lot of this focus on old brands, the Aunt Jemima, the Quaker, PepsiCo is really looking at the Quaker brand. Some of the, some of these yeah, I think you're right. I think you're the personification of brand. Is it back to that brand becoming super intimate? Mm-hmm. It's it's we've invited you into our homes and onto our screens, and we're part of your communities. We're part of your experiences now in the shift towards the experience economy. Um, I think there's a separation a little bit in the people part of the brand versus the logo part of the brand. And if I'm thinking about Apple uh, as an example, is if I have a relationship with Apple and, or an expectation of Apple, it's with um, Tim Cook and it was with John Johnny Ive. But when I'm owning and working on my computer, it's an Apple computer. Like it's the logo. Like the logo is my, my pride point in representing mm-hmm. the equipment or it's, it's, it's emblematic. The and logo that, is almost more for you as a consumer than it is for the company. It's, a, it's your, an expression of yours. Yeah. You see that in the IP of, of brands of bygone eras like Atari, Kodak might be one of them from a logo standpoint of uh, at the Urban Outfitters, there's t-shirts with their logo on them. Um, and so consumers have a relationship with those brands in that way. And it doesn't, it might seem shallow on the face. It's not. I think when a company can marry um, the relationships that you have to your expectations of them with the affinity you have to their brand, that's really powerful. And that's how Apple past Steve Jobs has been able mm-hmm. to you know, really stay really strong with being agile in the market and, and turning into a services company last year and, and, and people being like, of course, sure, I don't, that's fine. I'll, I'll maybe not buy Apple News, but everything else looks cool. Um, so what's interesting about that then is how do you brand an experience? If we're saying we're moving it into an experience economy, how do you express your brand through an experience? And as you said, not just, you can express your brand through the experience. Like Disney's a great example of having a Disney experience is a very real thing. And it's just amazing that it opened up and immediately sold out all of its slots in Florida during a pandemic, people were still yearning for that experience. But if you're a product company and now you're shifting to an experience company, how do you have that sort of like that logo and that as a consumer, I'm sharing that brand. It's a different, it's it's through digital platforms. It's through social media. It's a little bit harder though. It's a, I think it's a cool challenge and there are examples out there. I'll tell you, I think it's exactly what Steve hit on. And we've seen it on a small scale with some of the smaller concepts we've been launching here with more local businesses. And it's the brand, when you want to understand what someone's doing, you talk to them, to the brand representative, to the face of the brand. And that's, you sort of connect with. But then when you sit, want to talk to your friends and you say, I'm supporting blank, you've got the hat on, or you've got the badge on your laptop, or you have, the brand is a way to designate your belonging to an idea or a concept. 
So they're both connected to the company. And then they're built into your experiences that they're not catering. So Apple is then a part of your experience when you're working in a coffee shop pre-COVID um, because it's there symbolizing that you're a creative professional. You know, Apple struggled a little bit with, they tried to pivot their stores to be more experience oriented with the centralized garden concept, I think. Never really, a failure to launch on it, but have, have consistently nailed user experience. Um, whenever you interact with an Apple device, that's experience-based. And I think when you think about from what you're building as a product or what you're giving consumers, there's always an experiential element to it. And it might not be a catered event, but think about what your consumers are doing with that product, what they're experiencing when they're interacting with it. And that allows you a connection point into those emotions around that experience. And you tap into being an experientially aware company, even though you're not catering experiences. Because I think not every company can cater experience and it would be really awful if they all tried to. Hmm. And what you're saying is part of the Apple experience isn't just using the Apple products, but also being able to display the Apple logo on your stuff. They're and, so integrative into your life now yeah. that like your entire life is almost an Apple experience. Yeah. Unless you're a bad guy in a movie in which you're using a Windows laptop. <laughs> um, is that how it works? <laughs> so just as, as we think about the future of brand and identity, I think we've looked back on kind of the trends that were happening pre-pandemic all this change is happening now and we've started to poke our head into kind of like this thing eventually is going to end my futurist hat on says it's going to end it's really going to end late spring early summer of next year of 2021 and at that point we're going to experience this sort of mindful hedonism space where people are going to be focused on community but want big experiences and and growth is going to be or success as a company is going to be a much broader definition of, of success beyond just profit. So if I'm running a, if I'm running a brand right now, what are your three, what are your three takeaways from this conversation? What, what do I need to know? What do I need to make sure I'm doing right this time next year to take advantage of kind of this new world we're going to be going into, or, you know, conversely not get left out. I think you start by putting in the processes to allow you to communicate and be responsive in an agile way, first and foremost. And that mean, doesn't just mean, I don't just mean technology. Of course, technology is a piece of that. But it's also, who are the people that you're putting in charge of those communications? Are they empathetic people? Do they have the skills to connect to humans and to actually understand when a customer puts in a complaint or makes a negative comment on Twitter to actually empathize with that person and really try to meet them where they are? That's a talent that not everybody has. And then moving into a second point, building off of that is what, what do you do with that feedback um, as an organization? Are you, how are you responding to customer feedback, um, to what people are saying in social channels? And are you properly escalating or um, internalizing that, that feedback and, and, and pivoting or commenting accordingly? Well, so interesting because so many companies are investing in chatbots to handle all this stuff. So it sounds like humans in the loop is still very important in this post-future. I think it's essential. Or you're intentionally building those chatbots and the machine learning algorithms that process that data and looking for the right things. Because acquiring that information uh, more efficiently is not a bad thing. It's are you looking at that information with a human lens and really trying to find um, what people feel when they're giving you feedback and not what they sometimes might, might literally be saying. Because they, they could be two different things. And so it's uh, are you building... Uh, data acquisition and data analysis with a human lens, or are you doing it through still still through like maybe a, a, a money first or money centric metric? 
So it's a human lens and also human oversight, because if you don't have human oversight, certainly you have, you're eliminating the empathy angle, but you're also eliminating, I think some aspects of the evolution angle, right? You're going to be relying more on what has been done before than you are on what could be. And you need to be able to envision what can be in order to connect and please customers going forward. And I just want to connect it back to identity um, before we offer the, the following points, which is when you're, whether it's the, some, some kind of AI with human oversight or actual an actual human connecting with your customers, the way to empower them to do that in a way that's going to give them something to check in with every time to make sure that they have a good North Star, that's your identity. That's going back to, okay, what are we trying to accomplish? Because if you're able, if you have that in a concise way that you can check back in with before you answer a question, you're going to do a better job of answering that question because you're coming at it from that perspective of this is who we are. Even if you are, if you've decided, oh, we're naked capitalism, that's still okay. You can answer that question from that perspective and it's going to be more authentic and it's going to resonate better as a result. I think building off of that to the final kind of third point is next summer, next late spring, when when we're moving into the economy reopening, are you operating out of expectations that you would have had the world not gone into the pandemic at the end of 2019? Or are you grounded in your identity and in what you have to offer the new world in, in spring of 2021? You know, What do consumers, beyond the hedonism and the exuberance of purchasing in a new free world, are you authentically present there and, and giving consumers something that not just that they want, but that they need and that possibly the world needs. Yeah. So it sounds like companies can use this time where they may have reduced sales, where they can't, where they're not spending every day trying to feed the supply chain. <laughs> um, you know, we used to say you got to build the, you got to build the plane while you're flying it. Well, the, the plane's grounded right now. A wonderful time of introspection to dig into what is what is my true identity as an organization? Who do I want to be in this post-pandemic world? You know, understanding that we have to move beyond traditional notions of success that are earnings per share based and moving into these, how do I become agile in local communities, respond with empathy and live in consumers' experiences? It sounds like those are the big takeaways from this. And, and all of those things start with who am I as a brand? What is my identity? And how do I want to express that out into the world? You've been listening to WavePoint Found, the podcast that explores brand and identity in the context of change. I'm Steve Hurst. And I'm Vessi Ivanova. And we're with Found Brand Agency. We help our clients launch brands, ideas, and products by keeping them grounded in their identity as they navigate change. I'm Christian Cruz, founder of WavePoint. We help companies use the future to grow their products and services, contribute to their communities, and create a better planet. Our show is produced by Found Brand Agency, with original score by Richard Carpenter. You can subscribe to receive future episodes at anchor.fm slash wavepointfound. Thanks for listening.